welcome to the Sober is Dope podcast. I'm your host, Pop Buchanan, and I am excited to have a really, really special guest today, part of our Sober Superheroes campaign. We have the great Zach Scow on the podcast today. Zach is 12 years sober. He survived end-stage liver disease. He was given three months to live. He's the founder of Marley Mutz, an amazing dog rescue company, Positive Change Program, and Miracle Mutz. Zach, how are you feeling today? I am doing spectacular. I'm excited to be on this show. It is definitely the uh, probably the greatest name in the history of podcasts, Sober is Dope. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I'm just excited to be able to talk freely and openly about, you know, something that's so profoundly important to my life, my existence, my family's existence, you know, for a long time, we, you well, you know, it's just a slippery slope to be talking about sobriety. So it feels, feels great. Yes. Thank you very much. And, and that's the, that's the most important thing. And our stories are um, a little similar. When I was first, when I was 27 years old, the doctor told me I had half a liver. Um, they didn't understand. It was like, you're real young. You're a good looking kid. What's going on with you? The psychiatrist was looking at me like, what's up? Like, why are you drinking like this? Your liver is pretty much, you'll die within a couple of years if you don't stop. Then I went on for another beautiful four years, just tearing apart the town. And I think mainly because I just was initially afraid and I just didn't understand. And there was so much factors that went into it. So for me, what I want to talk about with you today is your recovery journey. You know, given a, 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 a liver disease diagnosis with a three month with three months to live yeah. had to be tough. You're talking about July 2008. And I just want to go back before that even. And I want to ask you straight, what yeah. was your what was your deal with your addiction and what was tormenting you and keeping you within the addiction to bring you to that point and any insights you could give us on your journey? Yeah, yeah that's a good question. I mean. Obviously, there are family reasons why I, I am the extent of the alcoholic that I am. You know, I'm predisposed to certain types of, of addictive behavior, alcoholism. My, my grandfather, my dad's dad, died of liver failure at 41. Yes. This is actually, I'll show it to you right now. Yes. I happen to have it right here. But my grandfather died. This is his 24-hour-a-day book. I never wow. met the man. He died July 3rd, 1961. The book is marked July 3rd, 1961. Wow. You know, it's got his social security card in it. Oh, it's, man. It's got his sponsor's number. It's all oh. this incredible stuff. And I found that my first month into sobriety, but wow. we're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, there were a lot of things that contributed to me becoming an alcoholic at the rate and at the pace that I did. And um, it's, it all starts with just not feeling comfortable with myself and having a lot of expectations that I never felt I could meet. You know, I was, um, I was a handsome kid. I did really well in school. I played basketball. I played baseball. I played football. I surfed. I skateboarded. I snowboarded. I was involved in just about everything. But right about middle kind of juvenile years in the middle of high school, you know, I started to feel kind of overwhelmed, you know, very uncomfortable in my own skin. Um, I had gone through some fem some sexual, some child sexual abuse at a young age between like basically seven and 10. I couldn't tell you exactly the years, but it was something that occurred several times in my childhood and really threw me for a loop when I came of age. So when I, when I came of age and I'm st supposed to be dating girls and I'm getting all this pressure from my friends and I'm terrified and 
situations involving intimacy and women. I mean, terrified. And I grew up in a household, you know, I grew up in a split household. You know, parents got divorced when I was young. So I had a lot of gay influence in my home too. A lot of the men that I looked up to were gay. So I didn't know what was happening with me at a young age. I was really, really confused. I was so scared around women and I grew up around gay men. I even thought I, had, I maybe my, my sexuality was, was talking to me. I mean, I've always been attracted to women, but that kind of abuse at a young age messes with you in a way that it's, you don't understand the correlation. So really what I knew is that putting alcohol and drugs into my body helped me deal with that. Mm. Helped me feel, helped me feel like I could look myself in the mirror. Like I could, um, you know, I, I also come from a town where there's a premium on your ability to, to get intoxicated and fight, you know, be with women, fight and do, you know, party hard, live hard. That was the culture of Hermosa Beach, California, very much so a punk rock, you know, culture. So it was something that I, that my whole community, everyone I looked up to was steeped in that. And so it was kind of something I always aspired to be. I even looked like the hip hop group, the alcoholics when I was young, they were my jam. Yes. I love the alcoholics, you know, so it was yes. everything about drinking, <laughs> you know, everything about drinking and using drugs was, was something I wanted to be a part of. And that's, that's how I got, that's how I got started. That's how I got going. Well, thank you for that. Well, first thing, um, you know, I'm, I'm in the music industry. Um, I do hip hop and that was kind of my issue too. Like I, I try to tell people we, we're not given a memo when we're young that we have this aversion to alcohol. Right. And it's a social lubricant. It's a social norm. And the, the problem with that is, is that we grow up with the normal expectation that to be cool, you have to party, you have to get out there and mingle. But if you're like myself um, and you have an addiction issue and you don't know me, like I said, we don't get the memo leads to a life of problem problems. And for me, I was stuck. I mean, a whole image of the rapper, get the bottles, go to the club, get the girls, be out there, be the center of attention. And yeah. just being stuck with that, I could, I could relate. And also we just did an episode on sex and addiction and uh, the myths that we're somehow more interesting to the opposite sex or to, or, or in a relationship, whether the same sex or we're more interesting or we could be better lovers or oh, we'll sure. be, and, and that's so far from the truth. So we did an episode debunking that myth, but when you're young, you're looking for that courage, you're shy, you have all these hormones and sometimes alcohol is that gateway yeah. there. So thanks yeah, for sharing pause on that. that, man. Yeah. One of the coolest things about my life, about recovery was, I started, I started my journey into recovery and we can go back and go no, through a bunch of stuff, yep. but what I got to discover is I got to address this. I got so comfortable sharing about myself in recovery that I, I finally went to a therapist. You know, I, I found a safe space where I still felt manly. I still felt, you know, I'm a highly sensitive person, man. So the word manly, while it's conventionally applied to me, doesn't really apply to me anymore, but working, being in recovery allowed me to work with a therapist for the first time. And I got to address all this stuff that I, that I otherwise wouldn't have ever addressed had I not found recovery. And man, the, the intimacy I get to embrace in life now is that it's a whole different ballgame. And I, I got yes. to discover who I am as a man intimately. And it's yes. been, it's been stupendous. You know, before that. it was like everything about intimacy was getting fucked up. Yeah. It was having drugs present. I, I, I did not have an intimate moment for 15 years that didn't involve heavy amounts of alcohol and drugs. Yeah. You know, so you always associate alcohol and drugs with intimacy, period. I always did. Yeah. So to get to, to be introduced as a, I'm a 40 year old man now, but I'll be 12, 12 years sober in October to get to like, not only be 
I mean, I'm still discovering myself, and it feels pretty fucking good, man. Yeah, you know? I'm with you. I'm 40. I'm 40 also, so we're the 40 club. We're doing our thing, yeah. right? And, yes, I would. I, ha- I have to be honest that my ability to connect is much is deeper. My life and in sobriety, so right now in my recovery, I could testify that it's just such a – you could connect more, man. I remember wanting to connect so badly when I was younger, and I yeah. – I, I, always related alcohol as if I needed it. And it was the one thing destroying the experience. Like looking back, it was so many squandered opportunities where I really wasn't able to give my all to the person that I love. And that's sad. And, and that's why I love the fact that we have this platform so we could put the future generations on or anyone right now. So yeah. Zach, Zach and Pop is letting everyone out there know right. right now, you don't need drugs and alcohol to connect. You don't need drugs and alcohol to be a better lover. It's actually mm-hmm. going to make you a worse lover. Um, and you are enough and you are worthy. So I love that, man. The best thing to be talking about, man. I'm stoked that we're unpacking this because it's yeah. really, really important. for as a, as a young person, I got sober when I was 28. I started in recovery when I was 28. So to be looking at that, I'm going, it's the end of the world. I'm never going to be able to be properly, properly intimate with somebody. I'm never going to be able to drink again. How am I supposed to be intimate? My life is over. I'll never find a wife. I'll never be able to, to throw down like I want to throw down on that. All these things that like, I thought flew out the window. And, and it couldn't be further from the truth, man. And you hit on connection. I always, I'm a, again, I'm a highly sensitive person. And for me, that sensitivity is, is drug. The only antidote for that uber sensitivity is connection. That's the thing that, because you get to relate to people, you understand that you're not, you know, tragically unique. And I thought, I thought connection was one in the same with intoxication, that without intoxication, you did not have proper connection. And you hit the nail on the head, man. They are completely unrelated. And in fact, you can connect so much more without, without drugs and alcohol. And you can really find the, I mean, you can never really understand yourself when you're fucked up. When you're focused on intoxication and and pursuing oblivion, you never really get to figure out who you are. You get glimpses of who you might be or how you operate under those conditions. But for me, being able to be intimate and sober and, and, and to be, it's a true freedom. It's a true freedom. And I've really discovered who I am as a person, you know, for the first time in my thirties and now into my forties. And I still feel like every day, man, every week, something new is happening and I get an opportunity to grow that I wouldn't have where I stuck in, in my addiction, man. And I got a lot of people in my life, a lot of really close people to me, brothers, people that I've grown up with my whole life who are still on the hamster wheel of addiction. And I got the most empathy for them that I possibly could ever have, man. Just watching what that's like and watching the barriers that they have to connection, the barriers that they have to responsibility and intimacy. It's tragic. Right. And we don't have to deal with that anymore. And we don't. And the thing is, you know, alcohol is a depressant. So when you're looking to have a good time and using something that actually depresses your nervous system and makes you and removes you from that from that ultimate state, it's dangerous. And, and that's why I and I'm glad you mentioned therapy. So for a lot of people out there, you know, therapy is a better replacement for using alcohol as the medicine. Alcohol and drugs is not your therapist, and it's going to just compound the issues while temporarily masking it, and it creates a problem. So don't be afraid to go get therapy, handle your business, and remember, alcohol is just a very insidious substance. So that that that's the worst thing about it. You It's going to make you think you're going to have a good time. 
my yeah. life, I used to end in fights and out like the worst type of arguments, not remembering anything. And just, it was just a mess, man. And now I'm able to connect and the love gets better. Your energy gets better. And this is why for men and both for women, your, your hormone levels go back to a really healthy level when you stop drinking drugs or using alcohol. So when you're looking to connect, you're looking to have this vital experience, but that's a hormonal on a chemical level It's a hormonal thing. So yeah. same thing with depression and mental health. When your neurotransmitter hormones drop to an unhealthy level, that's where you get these uh, depression, anxiety, mania, bipolar and stuff. And part of healing is just embracing your natural self. So I'm glad, hey, we touching on some really good things. Man, my antidote for everything back then, if I was feeling anything was, well, I just need to get, I need to get fucked up. Yes. That was my antidote for everything. And instead of, and that prevented me from really ever truly understanding what I was made of or feeling. Yes. You know what I mean? I never really got to address what I was feeling because I always covered it up. So, you know, there, there's this freedom that comes with sobriety, this freedom of like, it, it's for real you, you know, yes. it's the realest, yes. real version of you and every all the pros and cons of that. But there's this true freedom that I, you know, I also reflect on, like, I was just touching on people that are close to me that are still stuck in this disease. And and they're confined by so much. They're confined confined geographically. They can't travel to certain areas unless they you know, bring alcohol with them or have a way to get d- drugs with them. It yeah. was very much that case with me. I could yeah. not travel outside of the greater Los Angeles area. I mean, I brought drugs. I brought hard drugs on airplanes on a regular basis, like sacrificed, made such knucklehead decisions simply to, to try to feel comfortable. I didn't get to travel with friends. I didn't get to be a part of things because, you know, I was restricted by my, by my, by my disease. And now that I don't have that, the freedom is unreal. The freedom to just kind of it's almost overwhelming because you can, you can do pursue anything, anything. literally anything. You know? Yes. And, and, and that's beautiful. Yeah. I remember I needed alcohol and you mentioned this, the, um, I was reading up on you and how do you describe there was a baseline normal. It was a necessity to live. Your baseline normal yeah. was the drunk inebriation and getting intoxicated. Mm-hmm. Same thing for me, man. And I just felt like I really needed it. I remember like, I would have to think about using the bathroom. I would I like, I don't know if I don't have cigarettes, I may not, I have to just hold, I got to get a cigarette if I'm going to do this thing. I'm, 100%. It was just crazy. It was like the 100%. most, it was the most bizarre stuff. And, and look, we're at a point granted where we could look back and laugh at it. Cause I'm eight years sober. You're 12 years sober. Um, we're both in our forties. We're at that point. And I, I know you could attest to this going back to when you was looking in that mirror and you didn't like what you saw and me going back to the point where I was really jammed up. We, I I never thought I could get to a point of healing where I'm looking, I'm laughing, I'm healthy. I mean, like it was dark, bro. It was dark. And that darkness is what I want us to really talk. Like I, I like to put, a highlight on because too many people forget the darkness and then they, that's how they relapse. They start to get comfortable in their recovery. Oh, I got this now. My life is different. I could have a drink here and there. I could play with that. And what I love about you is that you use a life of service. You use the reality of where you came from, your health, acknowledging your liver and the gratitude for all of these gifts that recovery has restored to you. Right. As everything as a means to stay sober. And I love that. So how are you doing today? You look great. You feel great. Um, How was recovery like the overall experience? It's been a ride for the 12 years for you. It's been a real ride right now. I'm in the middle of 
you know, I think when any, a lot of times when people hit double digit sobriety, you know, you get into a, into a, you don't know if you're in a groove or a rut, mm. you know, and, and I got in a, in a sobriety rut in that I wasn't participating the way I was used to participating. Cause I, I threw myself into, into this a hundred percent. You know, I was going to one, sometimes two meetings a day, seven days a week. You know, I was very much involved in doing panels and H and I stuff in hospitals and institutions and, and then I got started working in prisons and I started sponsoring guys in there. A lot of that's through letters or when we would go in several times a week. And so I thought that doing that service work was enough for me. I thought, cause I was doing so much in the world and I, that being of service to those guys and being of service to, to people who are on the transplant list. Other, I, I also sponsor people who are uh, awaiting liver transplants. So okay. just going through the process of not only recovery but also what you can do for your body to try and, and help you survive long enough to get your transplant and to also stay eligible. And um, I just found myself sideways, man. I found myself gravitating towards the chaos. A lot of these patterns that I used to have in when I was out there doing it. And it, and it scared me, you know, and I really got to a point where I had to, I had to buckle down. My, my sponsor moved. So I didn't have that same synergistic, like, and he was a real father figure, somebody I could really, really bounce things off of all the time. Yes. And, uh, and then I didn't think I needed it. Same thing. You know, I, I've got my 12 years, you know, I've, I've yeah. done a few things. I've, I've been to a few meetings, you know, and, um, and I got to humble myself. I got to be in a position where I, I, I got to admit to a bunch of people that, Hey, I'm not working this the way I need to. I'm not being as honest as I need to. I'm not working the steps like I need to. And so I, you know, started over again, working the steps with a, a group of guys and, and it feels tremendous, you know, and all of the, things that have been bothering me all the things that that wore me into this rut that kind of pushed the back end of my my back end out and caused me to spin all the answers are in recovery all the answers are, are here for you you have access to all of it you know so I, I get to to work those steps again and right now I'm working my my fourth and fifth and um, I feel tremendous you know to get to put my whole life all the things that because so much has happened in the last five, six years since the last time I did my steps. Actually, it's been uh, almost eight years, seven, eight years. Okay. So much has happened that I never, I haven't really taken a, a look at. And this recovery allows us to do that. So I put it all out there. I've got like probably 50 pages written down of all the things that I want to address, get to address, people I need to address, wrongs that I get to write. You know, there's just a, a framework to, to figure it all out or to figure out most of it. And I'm, I just feel blessed to be back involved in that and back involved in just the old school basics of showing up, you know, Amen. I get to do people talk, you know, talk a lot of shit about the zoom meetings, man. But I've been on some zoom meetings that have blown me away. I got to give my testimony last week and my, my mom got to open up and give the 15. Wow. Nice. I got to do my mom doing the 15, wow. me doing the hour. It nice. was incredible, man. Yes. Yes. It was no. real, real special. And there was like, 200 people on the meeting from Mexico city to Honduras to South Africa to Australia. And I don't know. I just love, I love recovery. I love connecting. Like we talked about in the beginning, yes. I got to be connecting with people in my sober circle, you know, yes. to really be held accountable and to, to not think like I, I'm somebody special, you know? Yes. Um, so it feels good. I feel just, I almost feel like a newcomer and I have that same, that same like zeal, of being uh, fully immersed in the program and seeing that all the answers are in front of me and, and being really, really grateful that I'm here.
you know? Hey, man, and, and God bless you. It sounds like you hit a rut where it could have went either left or the wrong way, and you did the right thing. You buckled down and you went back to the basics. So we talk about yeah. going back to the basics a lot on the podcast. And, yeah. and the importance of that is that, look, when you're in recovery – you do have this, I, I use the term superhero a lot. We are like little superheroes. We change so much, but we, we want to help everyone. We're out there. We feel like we have to, we holding up this. Sometimes it could feel like a facade, like the sober facade, like I'm sober and strong and I'm keeping it together. But it's, t- it's hard. Every day you have yeah. to fight. And, and it's the biggest war of our lives. Like the, o- yeah. the main reason I'm, I, I'm doing this podcast, I'm a busy guy. I have two or three companies of music or do this. Uh, yeah. I'm, I, it's because I have to help people and I have to even remind myself that we're in the biggest war of our lives. one wrong move or one wrong decision, we could be right back. And I remember because I relapsed to it like at least twice or two or three times before I actually got it together. And it really got worse and progressively progressive to a point where I almost died. And I tell people, you can't play with it. I've seen people 30 years in play with it totally right back to a destroyed rock bottom. Look like they never had time under their belt or anything. I mean, in a Mm -hmm. matter of weeks, you would yep. see the person and be like, oh, what the hell? Like, who are, like, and this guy would, like, you could throw everything away. I was arguing with someone the other day, and they was t- talking about getting to a point where you're old and you could possibly have a drink. And I said, everyone who tried it accelerated the point of death in their lives. And they yeah. just, in a really fast, yeah. profound way, destroyed yeah. everything. So yeah. I, I applaud you for that. And I thank you for saying that publicly, that you got yeah. to a point where you was vulnerable again, right? Yeah. You were sensitive again, and you had to connect back. Um, and yeah. you talk about that um, in deep. Uh, and you talk about here, we have, you begun a life of transformation and I want to talk about your dogs, right? I know everybody always want to go there first. Yeah. I want to talk about that in a specific way. Like, there's a point in your story in October when you looked in the mirror and you looked at yourself and the liver disease was wore you down to the point yeah. where you was unrecognizable, right? Mm-hmm. You described it as like just a really you was like just a broken man. You, you didn't recognize yourself. You was broken. And then you made this decision. So you from July to October, you had a three month diagnosis. And what happened between those three months to get you to that point where you had that revelation in front of the mirror, where you was looking at your dogs who showed you all of this unconditional love without judgment. You look up into the mirror you have yeah. your dad that's in your corner and you have your dogs and then now you yeah. have a willingness to change. Yeah. What, what went on there in your transformation? Um, and there was, there was a lot and there was a lot and I'm, I'm totally down to get into this. and I'm glad we're talking about it. Um, I spent six weeks in the hospital dying, you know, um, as soon as I got checked in, they said, you need a liver transplant. You're not going to get one, you know, period. Mm. So we did everything we could, you know, they, my kidneys failed. Don't remember that week, blood transfusions, getting my paracentesis, you know, I'm nine months pregnant looking, I'm completely yellow. They're sucking liters and liters of stuff out of my body. My paracentesis was in my back. So I had a catheter stuck in my back. Um, The first thing I did when I got hospitalized was get addicted to drugs. I mean, I got on morphine the first day I got on Dilaudid day three and I, I never looked back. So I became completely, I got off alcohol. I got through that, okay. which is okay. unbelievable. 
Yes. Right. So I got right through with that withdrawal experience only to pick up hardcore opiates, you know, wow. basically mainlining, you know, Dilaudid every three hours in a hospital setting. And I, and I took that shit for six weeks. And by the time I finally got admitted to the transplant program at Cedar sinai you know, I had completely lost my will to live. I wasn't going to be alive anyway. They already told me you're not going to make this. You know, you, you, you have less than, less than 90 days to live without a transplant and you need six months sobriety to even qualify. So, you know, I had no shot whatsoever. It, I mean, honestly, it wasn't until somebody from H&I, from the program, came into the hospital. I had my first meeting in my hospital room with a gentleman that got through liver failure in prison. And so my dad's sitting in the corner. He doesn't want anything to do with these guys. And he hears this dude's story. And, and this guy's wearing a, a, like a, a shirt and tie. And he look, he's a little bit older than me. And, and this dude's talking about how he got through liver failure in prison. So that was the first infusion of hope that we had. And at, at that point, my dad just set to getting me to a hospital where I could, where I could get more help. And, um, you know, fast forward, getting released from the hospital. I, I got admitted to the transplant program at Cedars, which is where I was born. I was born at Cedar sinai Medical Center. I was two months premature. I'm a twin. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot of craziness has happened at that hospital. I, I got a, my, both my brother and I received blood transfusions when we were infants oh. from men who died of AIDS. Wow. So we were born in 79 and back then no one knew anything about HIV AIDS. So, oh, you know, that was a real scary time where we didn't know if we contracted it. And so Cedar sinai has been a very oh. interesting, pivotal place in our history. Yeah. But uh, I got released from the hospital. You know, I had to start going to meetings just to be eligible. I, I, I attended meetings on a, on a liver card. A lot of people go on court cards wow. and stuff like okay. that. I was on, on a liver, liver transplant card. card. They, I had to prove that I was going to one meeting a day so that I could prove I was staying sober. Yeah. And um, it was, uh, it was a, I was only there to, to get a liver transplant. I didn't care about anything else. I didn't care about the people. I didn't care about the, any of the program. I didn't care about anything. I was so self-serving and caught up in my own shit. I didn't care about anybody or anything. Um, and, and, and for that reason, none of it really stuck in the beginning. And, um, what happened was my dad, I'd been out of the hospital about a month. I started to get a little bit better. I was feeling okay, but still very much suicidal. Like, I, I don't know if anyone out there is, I'm sure there are a lot of people watching this who are familiar with suicide. And, and it's one of those things that you can't get rid of when your brain latches onto it and you're in a place of complete incomprehensible demoralization. My brain just wouldn't let go of that. I knew where my dad's gun was. I just wanted a way out. I didn't want to put him through any more pain. We were like in tens of thousands of dollars in debt at that point. Oh, you know, no, no, there was just no hope in sight. And um, in the middle of all that, when things couldn't have got any worse, you know, when things could not have gotten any worse, my dad goes to Brazil for work for 48 hours. He doesn't even spend the night. And uh, what do I do? I get the backup keys to the truck and I go to the liquor store and I get Oh man. I get some alcohol, you know? And yeah. I, uh, I just remember thinking I needed to taste it so that I could sleep because I, I couldn't sleep, you know, I was having all these issues sleeping and I couldn't get my brain to just be quiet. And I just remember thinking, I just want to taste it. I just, I just, it's been, it's been a, it's been a few months now, but I just, I just need to taste it. That's what I remember thinking. And then I blacked mm -hmm. out and I really, I didn't black out all that often. Cause I was, I drank just such high quantities of alcohol I came to and, and my dad, like literally 48 hours later, my dad was coming home from Brazil. He would be home in three hours. He was at the airport. I cleaned up all the booze and I knew we had to go to the hospital. I was so sick when I woke up, mm. like my belly had already filled back up. Yeah. I mean, I was dying, you know, I was absolutely dying. And my dad got home, went to his office. I had to walk in there and, and um, I had my shades on, you know? So I walk in there like this and I said, dad, we got to go to the hospital. And he looks at me like, what are you talking about? 
you know, how about a welcome home? And I said, no, dad, we got to go to the hospital. I took off my glasses. He could see my yellow. Oh man. He goes, what, he goes, what happened, man? What, what, what are you telling me? And I said, we got to go to the hospital. I drank again. And he just lost it. man. he just started weeping. He just kept repeating, you know, he just kept repeating. You've killed yourself. You've killed yourself. You've killed yourself. And, um, and then he said, fuck you. I'm not taking you to the hospital. (laughs) You know, you, you drive yourself, you know, he was devastated. I mean, it absolutely broke his heart. It broke the last bit of, of hope and will that he had to fight this thing with me. And I, I just took it right away from him. And I was so sick too. I mean, you got to remember I'm a 175 pound man. I was 140 pounds, completely yellow with bruises all over my body with veins coming out of my, my stomach and my neck. And I mean, I looked like the sickest sick person. And here I am yeah. actually drinking, drinking like the last thing I should be doing. But what that relapse did for me, man, I don't know that I would be here if I didn't have that relapse. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Right. I, I don't think I would be here if I had, didn't have that relapse. That relapse was so important to me because it was like a shudder to my system. It let me realize like, this is what you're fucking capable of. This is your best thinking at work, you know? And, I really needed that, man. So I, I, I'm really glad you afforded me that opportunity to talk about my relapse and understand there's a lot of people, a lot of shame associated with relapse. There's a lot of, of, pre, of preconceived like no-nos about, about relapse. And, and relapse is, while it's, it's a terrible thing and it will, can rob you of your life, it's something that we do as alcoholics. And people yes. just need to understand that. I thought I was going to get kicked out, man. I thought yeah. people wouldn't let, I legitimately thought my home group was going to be like, you can't come oh wow. okay yeah 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 because i didn't I, I thought i was gonna break their heart you know and um that's not what happened and, and so what ended up taking place is i went to the hospital came back and i was uh on this stuff called enulose which is supposed to when you're in liver failure you have ammonia buildup on your brain you, yes. you, you vacillate between um being present like you, yes. you don't can't tie your shoes one day you know you're talking perfectly and then the next minute you don't know where you are and what yes. year it is really absolutely strange, you know? yeah so i was taking this stuff called enulose to deal with the ammonia on my brain and I, it makes you lose your bowels so i yeah. you know i lost my bowels in bed again which is a regular occurrence it's three o'clock in the morning my dad i didn't want to wake my dad up for him to clean me off and um, so i walked into the bathroom to clean myself off and I, my dogs are with me and they're always with me and I look, walk past the mirror as a full length mirror. And I remember seeing my belly, which was legitimate nine months pregnant, gigantic, oh, wow. yeah. with herniated belly button, varicose veins, completely yellow. And I'm staring at myself, looking at my eyes, you know, just staring at myself in the mirror. And, you know, I just, I didn't know, I did not know what I was looking at. You know, like at least in the, the fattest you've been, the skinniest you've been, the most wasted you've ever been, you can usually recognize yourself, you know, yes, and right. I legitimately didn't recognize myself and that. And I, I got just terrified, man. I, I, I just thought I was gone. I thought I had left the world and I just doubled down on, on committing suicide. I just realized like in that moment, I'm, I can't do this, man. I'm no good at this. I'm no good to my family. I'm no good to these people. I'm not even here anymore. You know, and then I, I turn around, I can, my dogs, again, like I said, they're always with me. And they're sitting in the corner next to the toilet, all three of them, Marley, Fred, and Buddy. And they're just looking up at me, you know, looking up at me like <laughs> I'm the greatest. <laughs> like, we're looking at each other right now. Yeah, you know, like, yeah, like, absolutely. Mad respect, <laughs> yes. mutual love, like, yes, relatability. Yes. And they're right. just looking up at me like, Dad, shit, man, you are the shit. <laughs> you are the shit in so many ways, Dad. Yeah, you know, yeah. and I don't see any of it. I, I don't see any of it. I don't feel any of it. Correct. I'm just exhausted at the whole 
the whole process of trying to fight and I didn't fight very well. It was just out of me, you know, and, and my dogs were there to just be like, Hey man, you're in there. You, you mm. might not see it. You might look pretty fucked up right now, yeah. but you're still in there. And, right. and we acknowledge you, you know? Nice. And, and so, nice. yeah, man, that, that, uh, that next morning I didn't go to sleep, watch the sunrise at like five 30 and, um, journaled, took a picture. I still have the picture of that sunrise that morning. And, um, and, and then that was the, kind of the, the, the first day of the rest of my life. That day, we just, I just said, we're going to start walking. We're just going to start mm. walking a, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. I could barely get a block back yeah. then because I was so sick. Um, but, it, but it worked, you know, and I started to add foster dogs to my pack. You know, I started to get back involved with the Humane Society because yes. I needed to do something. My doctors were telling me, you got to move. You know, I got to be going to meetings. I got I to find a reason to live. Yes. I didn't have one, you know, I didn't right. have sobriety wasn't really, I didn't even know if that was possible. You know, I really didn't, I didn't know yeah. if it was possible for people Correct. to live sober. Like yeah. I really, you know, and I just gave my life to the dogs and, and really Marley's Mutts, our whole organization was born out of just trying to make six months sober to qualify for a transplant. It was just having dogs mm. around me in my life so that I could write about them. I could take their pictures. I could care for them. I could um, rehabilitate them and help find them homes. And in that process, it took me out of my own bullshit to yes. be out of this crazy, crazy place that exists between my ears. And it allowed me to just worry about being, be of service, you know, right. it, it right. allowed me to figure out to first learn what being of service was. And it revolutionized everything, man. It revolutionized everything. And I, I slowly but surely started to get love from people. You know, it was really hard for me to accept love, but I, yes. I, I could accept love from them regularly. Yeah. You know, that's how I practiced. Yes. And then people that I got sober with, man, the floodgates opened. I fell hardcore in love with the people I got sober with. Still yeah. to this day, man, yeah. there's, yeah. there's like a hundred people that I would go to war with. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, Just because yes. of that, they taught me how to love again. I got Correct. To, yeah, it was really, really special. So that's kind of the that's kind of the, the story arc of how it all happened and, and the whole organization. I never wanted to be a dog rescuer or work in prisons and advocate for the disenfranchised. I mean, I've always been interested in those things, but I never thought it would be yeah. what I do, you know, or that, right. that I could make a living at this, yes. you know, and yeah. But, and, and there's a part of your story that I really love where you you started to see in the rescue dogs that no one wanted, the rejected dogs. You yeah. saw a bit of yourself in that, right? That and and the you know they cut the giant mastiffs, the mango and mangy mutts, the aggressive scared. Yeah. You know, yeah. the, every shelter they have these high kill shelters where mm -hmm. there's dogs in there that society just gave up on. They've been through yep. too much. They've been beaten and battered, but they still they they need love just like we needed love in our darkness. And you saw something there, right? You yeah, saw something totally. there between. The, these 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 mutts and these rejected mutts and us addicts out there, the dejected, yeah. the you know the the home like I, when I think about the homeless people in the street, how society just walks past them like they not human and mm -hmm. um, sometimes afraid to even talk to them like as if the homeless person is gonna bite them back or something. And you connected that, and I think that and so how did that help you like um, in your journey? What was that parallel there? You talk yeah. about a parallel, and I think it's just beautiful, man. That's like the most beautiful analogy how 
you know, in these, in the dogs, you saw aspects of yourself and they need a rescue just like we need rescue. That's beautiful, man. Yeah, man. My favorite people are the broken, battered, beat down, disenfranchised, maligned, you know, misunderstood. I've just always been one of those people. And I, I guess I still can't believe that I got a second chance that I get to be like, I have a beautiful wife who's in the other room. I got a two and a half year old baby girl, got a baby girl on the way. Like I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you in a house that I bought, you know, all these, these, um, these absolutely incredible things have taken place in my, in my life because of, of recovery and because of this, this idea of, of rescuing the unrescuable, but, um, to, to focus specifically on that idea, on the, the throwaway animals, you know, there is, there's this principle that runs through rescue. There's this idea that there's potential in everything, that every living being has potential no matter what. And, and some of these dogs have just got the shit end of the stick for a very long time. And some of these people in our world, you know, I, I work in prisons and there's two and a half million incarcerated people out there, 10 million children directly affected by those two and a half million incarcerated. And, and we've all but cast them aside we've all but but ceased to give them any meaning purpose or value on this earth and we have no problem doing it we just say oh well you you've done you've hurt somebody or you've done this so we we're going to lock you up over there and and lock not only lock you up but lock lock up all of your potential and i live to find the potential in the throwaways you know i live to unearth and mine the potential in in formerly thrown away people because it's those people that have been through some shit it's those people that have, have persevered through adversity. And you talk to any man, any man or woman that, or kid that has gone through incarceration, that's been locked up for five, 10, 15 years, the amount of, of integrity, the amount of, of human capability you've got to have to get through that with your humanity intact is, is really impressive. And they have so much to teach us, so much to teach us. And there's so much we can learn from them. So I've found countless countless dogs that, that can only be described as medicine that have been unearthed that have been mm. mined from these yes. high kill shelters who have gone on to to change thousands tens of thousands of people's lives dogs like cora who lives with me who's a double front leg amputee she was a dog that people said not only should you not rescue her but if you amputate her front legs that's cruel and unusual and, and you should get in trouble and by rescuing her we showed what's capable what, what wow. she's capable of you know, and this little two-legged dog now has gone on to inspire hundreds of thousands of people. I don't know how many millions of people have seen her stuff and tens of thousands of messages that we've got, but we would have missed that if we weren't willing to, to find the potential in the throwaways. We, we would have missed that. And, and right now, in, in particular, we're in a really unique position in time where we're going to look back on this as an opportunity to go find the potential in the disenfranchised, to go find the potential in the people that haven't had the opportunity that others have. So I think that idea, that that rescue principle of finding the potential in the throwaways is so important now. And not just finding the potential in the throwaways, but just understanding that every human being, regardless of whether or not you may immediately see it, has limitless potential. I mean, limitless potential if you only feed and water it. If you nourish that potential, you never know what you're going to get. And um, there's just a lot of beauty out there that simply needs to be believed in. You know, you got to believe in that beauty. And that's, that's what happened with me in recovery is people believed in me, man. I had my self-esteem was dog shit. I mean, it was non-existent mm-hmm. and people started to believe in me and I started to see the beauty in myself a little bit. You know, I still don't, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't really see what other people see, but I got to build up my self-esteem enough to where I, you know, I got to be of service to a lot of people and and I would have been dead a long time ago had Mm. somebody not believed in me. 
And so I really want to get out there and just believe in as many people as I can and, and help show the world um, their potential. You know? I love it. You talk about the benevolent mechanism, the symbolic relationship between the people and the dogs, um, the prisoners, the the rehabilitated people, addicts, and mentally challenged. Man, look, you're all star. I see it in you, um, Zach, and I. And you know, at some point, we have to, we do have to drink our own Kool Aid because that's the best. We can't drink the other stuff, right? <laughs> That's right. So That's my right. thing is, I started to believe even in myself, I realized that, and this is an essential aspect of how the brain works and kind of like some signs of the law of attraction and that fancy stuff about thoughts attract things is you can't really get to that next level unless you believe it. You have to kind of start to believe it. And I know it's tough for me for a long time. I didn't see what everyone saw. And I, you know, I have friends who call me, I retired, I gave up music, I gave up so much. And people used to call me every day and campaign and say, look, you're good, man. We want you to work on your music. You're good. We want you to get out there. We want you to start acting. We want you to get back into all of the stuff you used to do when you was younger. I'm like, I don't see it. And they, and I gave up when I first got sober. I just was like, it's just about sobriety. I'm just going to sit here and try to live the straight laced life, go to work. And that's it. And it was a whole nother world full of potential but it took the love of others to kind of show me that. And then I started to have to believe in myself. And then one day I just said, you know what, I'm not going to limit myself no more. I'm not going to, you know, that's part, that was part of the addiction. I didn't believe I felt like I wasn't worthy. You know, I lost my dad when I was 13 and that was my hero. And that was my pain point. And I started giving up. Like, I felt like, well, what's the purpose of all of this? If we could just die. And, you know, and I started questioning God and all of these things and, all of that led to this place where I was stuck in a room by myself um, with the inability to process my emotions, drunk, broken, depressed, angry, tired, and frustrated, and disconnected from everything that I love, the girl that I love, the, the family, my family, my potential. And I, I needed rescue, right? And yeah, that's the yeah. whole analogy in our talk. And God gave me, God threw me my last Hail Mary. I tell you, Zach, I had one Hail Mary. I was walking. I went from making all of this money out of college, brownstones in Brooklyn, all of this stuff. Had three, the, uh, a three-level brownstone in Brooklyn, New York, and a swanky little area. This young kid running around to walking in the streets with nothing. I lost everything imaginable couldn't call my mother couldn't call anyone and i got on my knees and i gave my life back to god but the prayer that i sent to god was a it was a sos it was like i need rescue and if you could get me out of this i'm gonna fly straight i swear i was like god i'm gonna strike you the deal of a lifetime because <laughs> i i know you tired of my stuff i know yeah. it and then I felt you like get was, me forever. you get me forever. And I never looked back. And then, and, and I was like one of the, you know, I'm like one, I was like one of Marley Mutt's on that street. I just would yeah. needed some, no one else believed in me. The world was certainly like, uh, uh-uh, you know, yeah. but God said, yes, kid. And if you get up and then start to believe in yourself. So there's so much truth in your story and so much love, man. And you're awesome. And you and I together, let's keep growing. Look, we're young. We only 40. We're in the best shape of our lives. That's right. We're living this roller coaster. And Zach, I'll tell you one thing, man. Just don't burn out, bro. Give yourself the time and energy you need. Know when to say no. And I'm telling yeah. you this out of love, bro. I see what yeah. you're doing. You have a lot going on. 
Yeah. Make sure you have the right infrastructures in place to where people can handle things when you get tired. Remember that yeah. it's okay not to be okay, bro. And make sure you take care of yourself because you're say You say 5,000 um, dogs to date, about 5,000. Yeah. Look at that, man. Yeah. You ch That's changing the world. And that's yeah. changing the world, man. That's God put you here for a reason, right? Yeah. And he did it creatively. Your story is very creative. <laughs> for sure, man. He was like, yo, this guy, he, he worked it out in such a way. He put the dog, he had everything there for yeah. you. Um, so yeah. I, I'm excited to see oh. where we get. Oh, they said yes, the dog, the dog's yeah. coming. Oh, he's into it. He yeah, said, yeah. He, yes. <laughs> so you went from healing, you know, you had three months to live. How's your liver doing now? And can we talk about I'm any doing, of Yeah, man, I'm doing great. Uh, what happened with my liver is I had stage four end stage is what they call it. E-N-D. Yes. You yes. either die or you get a liver transplant. So, you know, the, the worst kind of cirrhosis of the liver you can have. Um, all they told me was that you need a transplant. There's no way out of this. You're not going to get better. You need a transplant. So when I finally got six months sobriety and was eligible, my doctors were, were baffled. They basically said, you're still very ill, but your liver is improving. You're somehow getting better. Um, we're just going to keep an eye on you. And at that time in the beginning for the first year, I was basically going once a week okay. to see all the time going to the hospital. I was that sick, that like, uh, fragile. And then, um, it started to become once a month and then once every two months. And every time I go in for a check, my doctor would be like, I don't know what you're doing. And this is the head of transplant. Her name is Dr. Tram Tran. And, um, she just says, I don't know what you're doing, but you keep doing it, man. You, you're, you, it, you appear to be reversing your cirrhosis of the liver, wow. which is exactly what happened. So currently I have what's called stage three fibrosis. Okay. I no longer have cirrhosis of the liver. I'm one of like 0.5% of transplant patients that have reversed their cirrhosis and now can live on with a relatively healthy liver. So, I mean, I've changed everything. Don't use alcohol or drugs. And I, and I do the best I can to eat a healthy diet, you know, try to remove a lot of things that, that aren't healthy because your liver wellness is your entire body wellness. If you don't take care of your body, the reason most people don't survive cirrhosis is they're obese. That is almost uh -huh. the primary reason why people don't survive. Okay. So I, I work with a lot of different people in transplant just to give them advice on how I got through it because it so rarely happens. It's yeah. such a rare deal to have gotten back from from liver failure. Um, and I just want to share whatever I've learned with as many people as I can, you know, yeah. so I get on some of those, there's a few living with liver disease pages on Facebook and stuff. And I just try to stay active on those and, um, and help where I can. But let me ask you something, man, you talked about God, about your relationship with God. Isn't it interesting how, I mean, I didn't have a relationship with God until I got mm -hmm. sober. I didn't. Mm -hmm. In fact, I prided myself in, in not having a relationship with God, you know, maybe that was part of the problem. But uh, I found this, this completely reborn, not reborn in the sense of, of like Christ reborn, yes. but a, a reborn, renewed relationship with God that I absolutely love, man. Like yeah. I, I love more than anything to have this. It, God is still enigmatic to me. It's still yes. kind of hard yes. to understand and that's absolutely. okay. Yes. But, it, but, but, but she is there, man. <laughs> you, know what I, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. She I is like definitely that. present. <laughs> And I, yeah. I never had that. And that's just such a, a lot of people assume that when you get sober, you know, there's this weird, like Jesus that, or there's, there's some dogma that you have to prescribe by, yeah. that you have some religious doctrine that you have to sign and like, you know, cut your finger and submit some blood. And, and none of that happens when you get sober. It just helps to have 
you know, a God of your understanding in your life. And for me, that's been like the, the one parallel or really integrated part of my sobriety that's been so important is, is developing my relationship with God and, and um, always having access to that. You know, before yeah. it was just me, I was just having conversations with myself. No wonder I got in so much trouble, man. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And you know what, Zach, for me, it was the opposite. I grew up in a Catholic household. My brother, um, Roman Catholic priest of a brother, um, highly influential, important guy. I was an altar boy. I went to two Catholic schools. I graduated from one of the Bishop Lachlan High School, the same high school Mayor Giuliani went to, fast track to go to really good schools, went to college, knew God, studied all type of spiritual texts, med meditation, Tai Chi, Zen. I had it all. And because I knew it all, I developed somewhat of a God complex and took God for granted. And it wasn't until I was reduced to a low a point a low point that i absolutely said i got to stop playing with god because it was i i felt like i was a i had a higher responsibility to do the right thing because i knew better and i just knew because of all of that i think that's what saved my life that was the point where i could confirm with the world that there is something evil in the universe that will gladly help you drag you to a to that dark place if you want to go there i tell people don't play with it because all of the little uh movies that people watch with the werewolves and vampires and all of these games people like to play in the world but if you want to play with that reality it will gladly take you to a really dark place and mm -hmm. don't take these things for granted so at my low point i realized that whatever that was had no love for me it was very comfortable with seeing me crawling on all fours in the middle of the street right losing totally. my whole integrity and humanity and i'm talking about i come from great people scholars, a line of priests. I mean, my grandfather was a political activist, a radical. He had, uh, yeah. he did so much. And I was a kid with all that is worthy. They call me Poppy Doc. I was supposed to be a doctor and do all of these things. And I'm sitting in the middle of the street, broken people looking at me and they're saying, and you know, people was looking at me kind of how your dogs was looking at me like, that's a good looking kid sitting there. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I was like, I was, I was still look good. And people was like, I was just sitting yeah. there and I tell you this much, when I reached up and prayed to God, it was the most impersonal thing ever, man, Zach. I swear, it was just such a, it was very simple. But I said, God, they got me. And I understand now. Like, I was brought to a point where I felt like I had a hundred chains on me and something evil said, we got the kid. We, he's captured it in our possession. We got Joseph. That's my real name. Mm -hmm. The kid who was supposed to be a priest. I told my mom I wanted to be a priest as a baby. I love Jesus, love God, love all. I studied every religion. I have. I could go on for days about that. Yeah. And they had me. And I said, God, this is real. Could you please come help me? Please rescue me. I was done, man. And I said, I don't want to die, God. And I literally, now this is the point of the Sober as Dope podcast that really, this is why I wanted to say, I heard a voice, bro. I heard a voice. I, yo, I'm talking about yeah. the voice was like, get up, go to this train, go to the hospital in Manhattan and, and stay there. And I never stopped following that voice. I got, I it said, jump the turn. You're going to have to jump the turnstile, go to 14th Street. It started working with me. Something said, okay, now this is the deep part. If, if I didn't 
totally surrender a hundred percent of my will and find humility in that point, I would have died within that week. I had I, my liver was already shot. I'm talking mm-hmm. about I was shot. I told you I was shot at 27. I kept drinking from 27. Now I'm what 30. Yeah. So I went three years on half of a liver with a total. You can't. They told me stop drinking. Right. Never. I didn't do none of the lactulose. Never did the tap. None of that. Just kept going. And I'm just sitting there broken. I went to the hospital. They looked at me. They said, you appear to look good. We don't know if we could get you up there. You don't have insurance. We got all these other people. And I started crying, bro. I said, you guys, if you don't take me today, man, I'm not. I'm going to die, man. I don't want to die. I don't yeah. want to die. And they and somehow they brought the director of the hospital down. And this man came up to me and said, kid, if you waste my time, we both going to be in trouble. Now, are you serious or not? If I get you to go upstairs, are you going to fly straight? And that's the moment where God was listening and this man was listening. And all my ancestors and everything that I love was listening. The whole universe was quiet. And I looked at him and I said, I'm done. Let's fly straight. I shook his hand, told him I'm going to fly straight. He said, go upstairs. That was day one of the Sober is Dope story, December yeah. 15, 2012, man. Yeah. Eight years later, I'm here, and I'm not looking back. Because I tell you yeah. this one, I take one. Now, if I could do a movie, we should do a movie. If I take one drink, you know what happened? All of the stuff will rewind in slow motion, and I'll go right back to that floor on that street. And that's 100%. how fast we lose it. And that's why I'm telling people, embrace your sobriety, love it, man, and do like Zach and I are doing it. We're living it one day at a time, but we're yeah. doing it in a way where it's fun, we're giving back, and look, sober is truly dope. And Zach, Zach, one of the reasons I wanted you on today is I wanted you are a living example of why sober is dope, right? That's right. <laughs> look at what you do. It's real. It's yeah, a real man. deal. I tell yeah. people, I'm not selling you on nothing. I'm telling you sobriety is dope and I'm giving people real reasons. So thank you so much, bro. You're a true inspiration. Um, you went on to start all of these amazing companies. We had Marley Mutz with on positivity for yeah. the inmates and thank you for yeah. helping out the inmates maybe we could um do something together with the inmates you know maybe i could somehow incorporate the podcast and help some of them like maybe we yeah, could a big do, yeah a big part of what i do in there is and what the dogs do in there is unlocking sobriety you know right because what did we talk about it's really hard to get sober if you don't have any self-esteem and a lot of these guys have been locked up in a place where they're they don't have access to their emotions. You show vulnerability or your emotions, it's weakness. You can't show weakness in prison. There's not a lot of love. There's love with your boys, but it's a different kind of love. So you bring dogs in there that need to be rehabilitated. And there's this reciprocal exchange of love and emotion that's just incredibly powerful. And what that does is open up kind of, and our guys have to give speeches, they have homework, all relating to emotional honesty and dog psychology, human psychology. And what happens is, man, the walls just come down and they eat. They're human beings, so they have this need, this this absolute inherent need to emote, and the dogs really give them the opportunity to do that. And we've created a, a lot of guys that have done their first sober years ever in prison. Man, it's a lot easier to, to be fucked up in prison. And I've had a, a, more guys than I can count, you know, that have had their first ever sober years uh, locked up, first wow. ever sober years ever, and and to do it locked up is really really impressive. A couple yeah. of them, yeah, my boy Brian James, who just got transferred out, out of Corcoran, um, you know ran a successful substance abuse program at his new prison. He got transferred to a place he didn't want to go to. He could have caved. He could have felt sorry for himself. Instead, he developed his own sobriety program there at Ironwood State Prison. He's wow. doing incredible things. There's just a lot of 
a lot of wonderful stuff you know sobriety is dope it is dope man and it's as real as it gets yeah. and i'm pretty sure i would be fundamentally like the op the opposite i would be whack completely whack if i was not this version this real version of myself and i i'm uh i thank god every day that i get to be sober that i get to access the real me Yes. You know what I mean? Amen. Amen. And I want to thank you for your um, honesty. You know, between you and myself, um, about uh, two years ago, my mom got hit with a, um, after beating cancer with a liver diagnosis. And it was just like yours, man. And doctors are still looking at her like some type of oddity. And I mean, they went to my younger sister. I wasn't at the hospital. They said, listen, make arrangements. Your mom's not going to make it, you know. And my sister said, listen, you can't talk about our mother like that. Our mother raised a Roman Catholic priest. She put all her kids through school. She fought. Our dad died when we was young. We're all she has. She's a fighter. You don't know our mother. Give Don't don't write her off. Fight for my, our mother. And you need to keep her alive. And the young doctor in Mount Sinai right now, this is all happening now. They looked yeah. at my mom. They said, hey, we're going to fight. And we went through the process. So I never really, I now I understand the liver part and the health part of addiction when I had to go with my mom to the place to, to get tapped, which is the paracentesis yeah. she was talking about. And yeah. she has to take the lactulose, which is the form of the stuff yeah. you would take in mm -hmm. till this day. And one day, and the same thing with the liver thing. And they, they was like, we don't, she's old. We're not sure if she could make it through a transplant. And then yeah. one day that she went in, took a, took a regular blood test and stuff. And they said, you're no longer a candidate for the liver transplant. We don't understand this though. Yeah. And, and now, and then wow. she went, then she went through a whole nursing home, couldn't talk, couldn't move. I have video where it was like, excuse me, Miss Buchanan, could you lift your hands? And my mom was like, okay. And her hands are not moving. Do you know who wow. I am? And she's like, okay. Now she's home back at her house, sewing, wrote a book, watching Netflix at, se <laughs> at, se at 72 years old. Isn't God good? There we go. Yeah, man. And, 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 and Mama Buchanan is sober. She also, she's sober too. And my mom is a miracle and she never remarried when my father died and she prays every day. She taught us God and she's been there for me and I love her. And so I totally have a soft heart for your story. I know what it yeah, took man. for you to get to where you get. And there's a supernatural transformation that the doctors can't they can't they don't have the tools to study what happened with you and my mother right that's yeah. why they were puzzled because yeah. they're like this is not supposed to happen but somehow god has a, or something greater than ourselves had something yeah. in store for you so zach I, I would love to have you on again thank you so much for gracing us yeah. with your time uh, in closing could you let everyone know where they could reach you and where they could learn more about you and could you give any final advice to any remarks to the sober community they're all <laughs> yeah man well dogs for chiming in marleysmuts.org is where you can find anything about the organization marleysmuts.org i'm just zach scow so z at z-a-c-h-s-k-o-w uh, our prison program is called positive change p-a-w-s-i-t-i-v-e uh, so you can follow us at marleysmuts at positive change at zach scow um advice for sober people is my advice would be to stay close to other sober people, you know, in, involve yourself in sober things. You know, this is a tough road. It, you know, just like anything, it requires you to learn it. You got to take it one step at a time. So try not to overwhelm yourself with trying to figure it all out at once and just take the next indicated step, man. The next indicated step, which might just be showing up at a meeting. It might be calling pop. It might be calling me. It might be sending me a message, sending pop a message, 
whatever, but just take that step, participate in your own sobriety, be there for yourself, you know, and much love to you, man. I didn't know how badly I needed to connect with somebody tonight over sobriety and just have some smiles and, and straight up connect, you know, that, yes. was, that was awesome, man. Thank you so much, Zach, and God bless you. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Sober is Dope podcast. I'm your host, Pop Buchanan. That's a wrap for our episode with the one and only Zach Scow, founder of Marley Mutz. I love you all. Tune in later, and I'll catch you on the other side. God bless you. Love you, you. Pop. All right. Well, love. All right. <laughs>